Father, this morning for the wonderful mystery of the gospel, mystery to the Old Testament saints, but revealed in your word, and so mystery now uh, to us, we, we understand, um, and yet there is an aspect of it that our finite minds struggle to comprehend, that you would send your son for us, who are we that you would be mindful of us, and uh, Father, that your son would die in our place, who are we to, to not feel the pain of the cross when we're the ones that deserve it? for it to be him instead. And we thank you, God, this morning that we can stand on the truth of the resurrection and we know that Jesus is alive. We know he's seated at the right hand and we know that one day he will return. But until then, God, we open your word and we sit under its authority because it tells us how to live and it shows us what you require of us and it shows us uh, just how much, Lord, uh, you are worth. And so I pray, God, that we can magnify your worth with your word this morning and that you would be glorified. And I pray, God, that you would expose us this morning with your word. Especially, Lord, if we are living in rebellion or if we're living in self-righteousness. If we're lost this morning and we see ourselves in the characters and the story that we're about to read, I pray, God, we would repent and if we don't see ourselves, because it's who we used to be, but now we're in Christ, we've repented of our self-righteousness, and we've repented of our rebellion, well then I pray we would be rejoicing this morning, and that we would not take salvation for granted, and that we would rejoice, Lord, uh, over the repentance of sinners the way that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to Luke 15. I do have to say, when we hired Pastor Ben, uh, Ben, one of the things we told you is that in, in light of COVID, uh, he's going to have to rebuild the choir from, from the ground up, that it's basically a starting over. And that, that was, uh, we knew that was going to be a process, and uh, I know it's not completed, I know that you feel like there's still work to be done, but to see a full choir up there this morning and to hear them singing, it's just phenomenal. They sounded awesome, and... Choir members, I know one thing Ben's passionate about is that choir is its own thing. It's its own ministry. It has its own identity. It's not just kind of lumped in with, uh, you know, just get a quick practice in and then come practice the Sunday songs, but they have time to really work together. And because of that, it's got its own special time on Sunday nights. And, and I know that that's a sacrifice for you to come and be a part of that. I want to thank you for giving your time to it because I, um, I still believe choirs are an important part of worship. And uh, and they are up there leading us, and uh, it's, it's, it's just awesome. So I, it brought me to tears. That's also a song that when I, that I got saved at Crossroads Summer Camp in July of 1999. Uh, there was a handful of worship songs they sang that week that I remember, and that's one of them. And so that song always gets me. So it's just, um, just a wonderful uh, time of worship. So thank you for that. It gets us going here. We're in Luke 15. It's our last time in Luke in 2021, uh, which is kind of crazy, but uh, we're going to finish up chapter 15 today, and then next week, um, and I, I know sometimes maybe if, if you're like, well, the senior pastor's not in the pulpit, it's like the substitute teacher, right? Maybe it's a day that you can uh, stay home or something. Uh, I want to tell you, next week, my friend Vince Oliveri is going to be here. Vince is a church planter. Um, I think Vince is barely 30, and this is already his second church that he has uh, planted. He's an amazing guy and an awesome preacher of the word. He's going to come and tell us about King's Cross Church, church they're going to be planting in Blacksburg next year, but he's also going to preach. And uh, I can't wait for Vince to be here and for you all to meet him. So don't miss next week. And then the week after that, we start our Advent series, which uh, is pretty wild that that time is upon us, but it is. Um, so uh, we will be back in Luke, Lord willing, in January. But uh, this morning we're in Luke 15. Uh, there has never been a greater storyteller that's ever lived than Jesus. He is the absolute best, uh, the goat, as all the kids say these days, uh, when it comes to uh, telling stories. Um, this is the most famous story from the greatest storyteller. 
Uh, it's the parable of the prodigal son. That's how it is most often known. In fact, in my ESV Bible, that's the, the, the heading uh, here. It says the parable of the prodigal son before verse 11. But uh, honestly, that title is indicative of how this parable is, is mishandled very often when it's taught. Because this is not a story about a son. Okay, It's not just a story about the prodigal son. There are three characters in the story, and Jesus makes that clear in verse 11. The first thing he says is, there was a man who had two sons. So we have three characters in the story that are all important. You have the prodigal son, the most famous, right, of the characters, but we also have uh, the father, and we also have the older brother. And uh, here's why they're all important. It's, it's because of the audience that Jesus is speaking to. If you remember last week at the beginning of chapter 15, Luke told us, uh, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. So that's one group in the audience. You got the tax collectors and the sinners, and then you have the other group. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's two groups in the audience, tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes. Each group in the audience are represented in the parable. You see uh, in the, the prodigal son, okay, and the, the younger brother, he, he is representative of the tax collectors and sinners. And the older brother so often gets left out and not talked about when people teach this text, but the older brother is so important because he represents the Pharisees and the scribes who were grumbling that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. And then we have the father in the parable who represents um, both Jesus and Jesus' father, our heavenly father. He represents the heart of God. And as we go through the story, here's what we see in the gospel. Or here's what we see in the story. Uh, we see the heart of God. We see how God redeems his children. Uh, there is this invitation to sinners in the story. There is this indictment of the Pharisees in the story. And ultimately what we see is the story of the gospel. Uh, we already saw Jesus put the feet of the Pharisees to the fire last week by just leaving them out. Okay, And the first two parables of chapter 15, the lost coin and the lost sheep, they're not represented at all, right? Uh, God takes joy in the repentance of sinners, just like the shepherd in the parable of the lost sheep, just like the woman in the parable of the lost coin. And heaven and its angels take joy in the repentance of sinners, but the Pharisees did not take joy in the repentance of sinners. Therefore, they had no representation in the parables. But just in case they missed the fact that Jesus totally left them out, which was an indictment within itself, this time he gives them a starring role. He gives them a character in the third and final parable of chapter 15. So here's how I want to go through this today, because it's, it's a big text and it's a, a famous text. I think the best thing we can do is read the passage, look at each character in the parable, and then interpret as we go. See the gospel as we go through the actions of each character. And in those actions, we see the heart of the Lord. We see our own hearts. We see our own stories. And um, I think it will be helpful to us. Before I read it, I just want to mention two books to you that have been really, really important in my prep time for this message. One is uh, Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And the other is A Tale of Two Sons by John MacArthur. Both excellent books, both approach the parable from kind of uh, a different writing style, but if you get done today and you're like, I, I need more Prodigal Son in my life, then dig into those two books. That's where you need to go. So uh, Tale of Two Sons by MacArthur, Prodigal God by Tim Keller, but both really helpful to me today. So let's uh, read here Luke 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, uh, when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, we start with the most famous character in the passage, the, the rebellious son or the prodigal son. And there's five things we see him uh, doing in this passage and in these actions from this son you really see uh, the manner in which sinners are alienated from God and then reconciled to God so number one the rebellious son becomes dead to the father and you see this in verse 12 he asks his dad for his share of the property that's going to be coming to him now in our culture to go to your parents and say, can I get my inheritance now, is, is, it's insulting. At the very least, it's a breach of etiquette. But in the first century, in Palestine, this was not just insulting and a breach of etiquette. It's a heinous offense. This son would be owed one-third of the father's estate. The older brother is owed two-thirds of the father's estate because of his position in the family. But you don't get the inheritance until your father dies. Until then, you are to entrust yourself to your father's care. You are to trust that if you have a need, the father will meet the need uh, until he passes away and you get his inheritance. But by going to the father while he's still alive and asking for the inheritance, the boy is essentially wishing his father dead. And it was such a brazen request... That if a son in the first century uh, in this culture were to do that, then he would be denied, he would be publicly shamed by the family, maybe even kicked out of the family permanently. Everybody listening to the story, including the tax collectors and sinners, would have been like, <gasps> you know, when, when Jesus said this, they all would have gone, you can't do that, that's no good. But the surprising, first really surprising thing we see here is the father actually gives the inheritance to the son. Luke tells us he divides the property between the sons. Make note of that. We're going to come back uh, to that at the end. But he divides the property. The younger son gathers all of it up. He heads off into a far country. The Greek word that translates to gathers all he has, uh, it, it means that he liquidated everything. So he took it all, he liquidated it into cash, and he heads off into the far country with his pockets full of wages. And as the boy goes off into the sunset, the father would have thought, I'll never see him again. He's gone. He wished me dead, he took his inheritance, and he is out of my life forever. And he would have begun to mourn his son as being deceased. Second, the rebellious son loses everything. 
You see it in verses 13 and 14. It doesn't take long for the story to take a bad turn. He heads off in this far country, squanders the entire inheritance on reckless living. Every penny the father had saved up to leave to his youngest boy was wasted. The verb that translates the English word squandered is the same verb that was used when farmers would take the chaff and and separate it from the wheat. When they would toss it up in the air and the wind would carry the chaff away and and then they would just have uh, the wheat. And and so maybe a a way that we could understand it better since we don't live in that sort of um, agricultural society uh, as much now is imagine just like a child on the beach with a handful of sand on a windy day, just throwing it up in the air and the wind just takes the sand away. That is essentially the image that we're being given here. That uh, this, this son goes off and he takes the inheritance and he just throws it up in the air and it's carried off in the winds of his sinful behavior. And he's got nothing left. And coinciding with his newfound bankruptcy is a famine in the land. So suddenly the prodigal who was flush with cash is broke and he's starving in a strange land. And so the rebellious son's dead to the father. He loses everything. Number three, the rebellious son lives in shame. In verses 15 and 16, he responds to this crisis by going and looking for work. And Jesus says he hires himself out to one of the citizens of that country. The Greek word for the phrase uh, hired himself out means to glue oneself to another. Meaning that this guy's probably not paying him. He has gone to him and he's attached himself to this guy. And the guy's like, yeah, just go out in the fields with the pigs. Just trying to get rid of them. And so he sends him out there. And to be out in the fields with the pigs as a Jewish man was a shameful position. The rabbinic law of the Pharisees actually pronounced a curse on any man who dealt with swine. And even worse, once he gets out there, this Jewish boy longs to be filled with the pods the pigs are eating. The pig pods are probably carob pods. Now, if you take a carob pod and you crush it down into powder, it can actually be used as a substitute for chocolate. Uh, It's sweet. But if it's not crushed up, you can barely chew it or swallow it. It's barely digestible for a human. And this is what he wanted. So he's gone from full pockets to starving and homeless, mooching off of others, working a shameful position for no pay, lusting after the food of cursed pigs. This is what my dad uh, would call living in squalor. He used that term my whole life, living in squalor. This is total shame. Number four. The rebellious son recalls the father's care in verse 17. He remembers that even the the servants of his father's household ate bread. Now, it was required by law for uh, timely wages to be paid to laborers. But there was no requirement to feed them from the table. So the fact that the father is giving bread to the servants reveals something about the father's heart to us already. That he is a kind, compassionate, generous man. And the son remembers this. And he goes, wow. I mean, I I can't go back and be a son after I wish my father dead. But if I could just go back and be a servant, he's so kind that the servants at least eat bread off the table. So if I could just be a servant, then I could go... I could get myself some bread. It's a lot better than these pig pods. What he's realizing is the disaster that he has made of his life. You know, a lot of people say that before somebody turns around, they got to hit rock bottom. He's at rock bottom here. And so, number five, the rebellious son repents in verses 18 and 19. He says, I will arise, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, which means he sinned against God, and I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He he doesn't have the brashness anymore that he had before, right? Before he, he, he was brash and, you know, give me my inheritance. But all that's been kind of beaten out of him here by the, the destitution that he's experiencing. And so he, he he's lost that and in humility now he recognizes I can't go back as a son. But if I could just be a servant, then that would be enough. 
And so he says, I'm going to go back and I'm just going to tell him, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, can I just be a servant in the household? He's not asking for the best position, he's asking for the lowest position. He just wants to be restored to the household, even if it's at the lowest level. Now this picture that Jesus has painted here, of this rebellious son, it is the gospel from the sinner's perspective. Right? We wish God dead in our sin. We refuse heaven's treasure, which is God himself. We refuse eternal reward, and we say, no, I want pleasure now. I want the pleasures of this world, and we live for our flesh. We take the lives that God has given us, and we run off into a far country, and we attempt life without the one who made us. And in all of our attempts to find life and to find joy apart from God, what we end up doing is squandering our lives, and we are left empty. We try to glue ourselves to the world. We try to find anything that will fix the broken mess that we have made of our lives. And then by God's grace, by the quickening of His Spirit, we come to our senses. We see the world eating the pods of success and power and money, and we realize those things cannot nourish us. It cannot make us whole. We remember the kindness of the Heavenly Father who gave us life to begin with. We realize we've sinned against Him, that we've trounced all over His grace, that we've taken His benevolence for granted. We realize we've wished Him dead, and the only way to truly live again is to turn back to, to, to repent, right? To turn away from our broken life that we have chosen and to humbly come before Him asking to be His servant. If you are a Christian today, this is your story. This is the story of your salvation from your perspective. For some of you, that prodigal living was a bit more lengthy and a bit more wild than others. But lostness is lostness. The far country is the far country. Sin is sin. Alienation from God is alienation from God. And your only hope to come back to, to, um, to be reconciled to God was to come to the Father repenting in humility, throwing yourself upon the mercy of His Son. And as Jesus tells the story, what He means to happen here is for the tax collectors and the sinners present to hear it and to go, this could be my story. If, if this son can repent, and he can go back to the house, then I can repent. And I can know God the Father again. They were morally estranged from the religious culture around them. For most of them, they've been told that there's nothing you can do. You're lost. You're a tax collector. There is no way back for you. You can't play the game of morality. You're out. You're going to die. You're going to spend eternity cut off from God. They had no part in it, whether they wanted to or not. They were in a far country. They were blowing through the lives God gave them. And most of them probably thought, well, that spiritual life just isn't for me. It can't be for me, even if I wanted it to be. But now they are getting an invitation from Jesus to come home. And if they do, if they repent and they come home, who are they going to find there? Well, it brings us to our second character in the parable. We've seen the prodigal son, and now in verses 20 through 24, we have the redeeming father. Five actions from the son. We've got three actions here from the father I want us to look at. Number one, the redeeming father is filled with unashamed compassion. You see this in verse 20. Son arises, he comes to his father while he's still a long way off. His father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, running as a grown man, okay, if you're not exercising, just running as a grown man, you don't feel dignity, okay? I experienced this this past Friday because we went to... Uh, we went, I took my kids to see wrestling, and, and my dad was with me, and it was awesome. My dad used to take me when I was a kid, and then we took my kids, and it, it, was, it was an amazing night. It was a blessing. But as we get up to the, the doors, we're about to go in, my dad goes, 
I got my pocket knife with me. You think they're going to let me in with that? I was like, I don't think so. Uh, so I was like, well, I'll run it back to the car. Well, as I started heading back to the car, man, we parked a lot further away than I thought we did. And I had the tickets on my phone, so I was like, I've got to get back before they get up to the door. So I'm running full speed in Norfolk, just running down the street outside of the scope, and I, I, I didn't feel dignified. I, I felt, I was embarrassed, okay? If you just see like a grown man in a suit running down the street, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, like it just, it does something to you. Now, if you see a little kid running just in everyday clothes, you don't think about it because it's a kid. There's something about being a man and walking that expresses like calmness and patience and the sort of things you want to express and project as a man. Um, it's even worse, though, in first century culture. Men just did not run at all. You just didn't run. Once you were a grown man, you stopped that. That was for little boys. So when Jesus says this, the people in the crowd would have experienced what I call embarrassment transfer, right? You ever, you ever somebody like does something that's so embarrassing that you're, you feel the shame for them? You're embarrassed for them. Their embarrassment transfers onto you. All you can do is just like look at the ground, right? Because you're just like, oh my gosh, this just needs to end. Let this moment end. You're cringing, right? It's called embarrassment transfer. They would have felt that just hearing the story. When this father starts running, they would have, they would have all thought, oh, that's, that's not what a man does. This man doesn't care about any of that. His son was dead. He had mourned him the moment he liquidated his inheritance and hit the road. When he sees his boy come home, dignity is the, the, the last thing on his mind. Compassion drives him to get up and run unashamed to his son. Tim Keller said it like this. Children might run, women might run, young men might run, but not the paterfamilias, the dignified pillar of the community, the owner of the great estate, he would not pick up his robes and bare his legs like some boy. But this father does. He runs to his son and showing his emotions openly falls upon him and kisses him. It's unashamed compassion. Number two, the redeeming father restores his son. See this in verses 21 through 23. Remember, the boy's got a plan, right? I, I, whenever I read this text, I think about him on his way home if he's rehearsing the plan in his head. He's like, okay, I'm going to get there. I'm going to tell him I've repented. I'm going to tell him I'm done. Just want to be a servant in the household. Get a little bread. You know, he's trying to like talk through his speech. He doesn't even, can't even get the plan out of his mouth. The father cuts him off, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He expresses his repentance. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's got one more line in the plan, doesn't he? Just let me be a servant to eat bread. He can't get the line out. He's not allowed to. The father cuts him off. And he says to the servants, get the best robe. Now, whose robe is the best robe? It's the father's robe, right? Get my robe and put it on my boy. He's covering the shame of his son in his own honor is what he's doing. Gets a, a, the, the ring for his son's hand. This would have been the father's ring. It would have had the family signet on it. The family crest. It would have been used to, to stamp a, a wax seal on documents to ensure they were authentic. It was the father's symbol of authority as the patriarch of the family. But he gives it to his recovered son. Gets shoes for his feet. These would have been sandals. Now, Here's why this is important. Servants, which is what the boy came back wanting to be, right? Servants did not wear sandals in the household. They would work in bare feet. So being given the shoes means that he is being restored, not just to a position in the household like lowest level. He's being restored to his position as a son. He's not being brought back in as a servant. So the sonship of this boy has been totally restored here the robe the ring the shoes and the father then says let's have a celebration with the fattened calf as the centerpiece here most first century meals did not include meat meat was really expensive most 2021 meals might not include meat if things keep going the way they're going you know what i'm saying so we might be experiencing some palestine life real soon here but um it it, it was really just reserved for a big party a special occasion now, if you 
came to a party and the fattened calf was there. Not just meat, but the fattened calf. I mean, this was like filet mignon, you know what I mean? This is the, this is the best that it gets. There was no more expensive meat than the meat of the fattened calf. And it was really rare that the fattened calf would ever be prepared. In fact, if the fattened calf was prepared, word would spread throughout the entire village and they all would come to celebrate and to get a little taste of the delicacy. Action number three. The redeeming father rejoices in resurrection. He says it in verse 24. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You remember last week, the shepherd finds the sheep, right? And he rejoiced. And the woman rejoiced because she found her lost coin. But a sheep and a coin cannot compare to a human being. Obviously. Not the same value, right? The human being is worth infinitely more. And then here, it's not just a human being, is it? It's his son. It's his his baby boy. And so the heightened celebration in the third parable matches up with the value of the thing that has been found. And the father would not have just celebrated with the family and celebrated with the servants. He would have sent word out to the entire community, right? Hear ye, hear ye. The patriarch, the one with the big estate, his his, his youngest son came back. He's having a party. The fattened calf has been slaughtered. As we speak, everybody is invited. Come and celebrate. And we see there in, in, in verse uh, 23, let us eat and celebrate. And then again, uh, after he says that his son that was lost is found, it says, and they began to celebrate in verse 24. If the parable of the prodigal son and, and, and the character of the prodigal son shows us the story of salvation from the sinner's perspective, then the redeeming father shows us the story of salvation and the gospel from God's perspective. We were lost. We were in a far country. We repented. We're coming home. And he runs to us. Right? This is the same God that we read about last week in Zephaniah who sings over His redeemed people. This God runs to sinners. Filled with compassion, He, he lavishes His love on us and He restores us. He covers us with the robe of His Son's righteousness and He seals our salvation by giving us the ring of His authoritative Spirit and He puts the shoes of the Gospel of peace on our feet. And He makes us sons in His household. Here's John MacArthur on this. What a beautiful picture this is of the forgiveness offered in the Gospel. The typical sinner wants out of the morass of sin And his first instinct is to devise a plan. He will work off his guilt. He will reform himself. Such a plan could never succeed. The debt is too great to repay, and the sinner is helpless to change his own status. He has fallen, and he cannot alter that fact. So the Savior intercepts him. Christ has already run the gauntlet, taking the shame for himself, suffered the rebukes, borne the cruel taunts, and paid the price of the guilt in full he embraces the sinner pours out love upon him grants complete forgiveness and reconciles him to god jesus has already told us how the lord feels about sinners repenting right heaven rejoices the lord and all his angels celebrate every time a sinner realizes they're made more or made for more than the carob pods of of sin the carob pods of self-gratifying pleasure he loves when people turn away from the far country and they, they come home. And they receive the grace that He longs to pour out on the humble. Now, so often this parable, when it's taught, people stop right here. Alright, prodigal son ran off far country, comes home, son saves him, or the, the father uh, restores him. Like, this is great. Story over. It's not over. There's a third character and there's another group in the audience who needs representation. So we we can't miss what's going on in verses 25 to 32. We get the righteous son now. 
Notice that I have righteous in very sarcastic quotation marks, okay? Because he's not truly righteous, he's self-righteous. But I had rebellious and I had redeeming, and so I wanted to stay with the R's, if I'm being honest with you. Five actions from the rebellious son, three from the redeeming father, four from the righteous son. Number one, the righteous son refuses to share in the father's joy in verses 25 through 28. Comes home, comes in from working, hears there's a party going on, goes to one of the servants. What's going on? What's all the music? What's all the dancing? Finds out the fattened calf has been killed. By the way, most of the time the fattened calf would have been saved for the oldest son's wedding. So he would have felt a certain way about that. Sees there's this massive celebration. Why? Because his rotten little brother came home. And he's furious. And he refuses to join in on the celebration. Number two, the righteous son justifies himself in verse 29. His dad comes out to entreat him. Right? To, to, to plead with him to come inside. But the older brother just starts justifying himself. No, I'm not going to come inside. I've served you for all these years. Never disobeyed a single command. Didn't get so much as a goat. Not even a little, little gathering with my friends. But here's the thing about his self-justification. It's, it's one-ply thin, Okay? Paper thin. First of all, never disobeyed a command? Come on. Who are you kidding here? You put your tunic on the same way everybody else does, right? You're not perfect. Surely he's disobeyed his father at some point. But unlike the younger son who realizes his sin and repents, the older son legitimately uh, legitimately believes he has no sin in the household. He legitimately believes he's never wronged his father, not even once. Secondly, you've never given me anything, not even a goat. That's ridiculous. Because if we go back to the beginning of the parable, what did Jesus tell us in verse 12? And he divided his property between them. He's already been given his two-thirds. He's placed the inheritance in the older son's hands. This isn't true. It's a lie. It's a, it's a slander of the character of the father. He's making his dad out to be a slave driver who offers no reward instead of a, a father who has given an early inheritance to his son. Number three, the righteous son demands justice over forgiveness. You see this in verse 30. Doesn't care that his brother is back. Just wants him to suffer for his crimes. Right? He shouldn't be getting the fattened calf. He ate up a third of the inheritance with prostitutes. When this son of yours came, not this brother of mine, right? This son of yours. It's like Adam in the garden. The woman you gave me. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Shouldn't be a party. He should be getting punished. Now, This tends to be the way that legalists react to things. They want justice, right? Legalist, right? And so there's this desire for justice. Now let me be clear. We God has built a desire for justice into all of it, uh, to all of us. For some of us, I think that gets obscured by sin. But legalists tend to see justice a bit more clearly than others. And that's not always bad. But when forgiveness gets obscured because the desire for justice is so strong, and forgiveness is never the first reaction, and usually it's not the second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth either, then then we have a problem, right? There's got to be justice. There must be recompense. Somebody must pay. Here's what the older brother doesn't realize. It's that the father did pay. Someone has paid. He paid with his property, he paid with his robe, he paid with his ring, he paid with the sandals, he paid with the calf. The father is atoning for the sin of the rebellious son. The father is the one absorbing it. He's absorbing the hurt. The righteous son can't see that. He just wants his brother to bleed. Number four, the righteous son rejects his father's invitation to rejoice. Father says, son, you're always with me. All that's mine is yours. 
It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's one last invitation. It's one last explanation. And then the story ends. Where is the older brother when the story ends? He's outside. He's not at the party. He's outside the house. He's outside the party. He's left out there with no resolution. And this is purposeful storytelling from Jesus. The rebellious son was in a far country, but he came home. The righteous son was in the fields, but he never goes inside. It's not symmetrical, right? If it was symmetrical, you would go, okay, the younger brother had tension with the father. It's resolved when he comes home. The older brother has tension with the father. It's resolved when he goes in the party, but it doesn't work that way. There's, there's resolution with the younger brother. With the older brother, you're, you're waiting. You're going, okay, so what's going to happen with him? And Jesus just ends the story with him standing outside the house. Now, here's why Jesus does this. The older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes. Imagine being them for a second. You hear the story, it's all shameful to you. You're standing there and you are a Pharisee. The son wishes his father dead and asks for inheritance. Shameful. The father gives it to him. Shameful. The son goes off and squanders it in sinful living. Incredibly shameful. The son tends to swine in a Gentile land and wants to eat their food. Beyond shameful unmentionable the father hikes up his tunic and runs to him shameful the father restores him shame 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 the father actually celebrates the wayward son the most shameful thing yet so if you're a pharisee you're going if there's just one redeemable character in this story that i could identify with in some way so then jesus starts talking about this older brother here he comes and you're thinking in your mind, well, surely this older brother can bring some rightness to this twisted tale. And they probably loved him. As they're hearing the older brother's reaction, they're going, yeah, that's right. You don't go in that party for this bum. Forget this. They identified with him because he's them. The older brother placed no value on forgiveness because he didn't believe he needed forgiveness, just like the Pharisees. The older brother had no true love for his father, just like the Pharisees had no true love for God the Father. If he really wants to honor his father in the story, you know what he would do? He would rejoice with his father. But instead, he's too obsessed with his own agenda, his own feelings, his own prestige, his own inheritance. His contempt for the father shows he's just as much of a rebel as the prodigal. You have to see that when you read this. Jesus wants us to see that as he tells the story. It's a story about two lost sinful kids. His unwillingness to honor the, the father by rejoicing with him is just as insulting as the younger brother asking for his inheritance in the first place. And Jesus gets the point across by leaving the older brother outside the house, stomping around at the end of the parable. Tension not resolved. And he tells the story this way to push the Pharisees, to force the Pharisees into self-examination regarding their own standing with God. They're the older brother, assuming that God the Father was pleased with them because in their mind, they were not sinners. They had never sinned. They served him well. They kept the law. They had no need of forgiveness because they hadn't done anything wrong. They looked at the tax collectors and sinners the way the older brother looked at the younger brother. They're the friends of pigs, the people of the land, right? Illegitimate sons of Israel who didn't keep the rules and they ought to be punished for it. If the Pharisees can keep the rules, why can't these tax collectors? And then Jesus comes along preaching the message of the kingdom eating with the tax collectors and sinners, calling some of them to be his disciples. And they cannot stand it. And they're stomping around outside the house, right? Saying, what a waste that he would receive people like this. They're lost causes. Count them dead. Spend your time with us, the righteous ones. 
And by leaving the older son, their character outside the house, Jesus is letting them know you're standing outside the kingdom of God. You think it's yours, but you're standing outside of it. You're standing outside of his kingdom. You're standing outside of his joy. You're standing outside of his redemption. And just like the tax collectors and the sinners, you need to repent and you need to come inside. The story is meant to show us that the older brother is just as lost as the younger. The Pharisees are just as lost as the tax collectors. They've got to repent and come inside if they're going to be a part of the kingdom of God and share in the joy of God. See, there's two flavors of sin in this passage, and I want to close with this. There's two flavors of sin, right? Two brands of sin. And I'll illustrate it to you this way. Um, Just yesterday, I was actually... Uh, we, we helped somebody move and, and I was on the phone and there was like this little pond that they had in the neighborhood and I'm standing by it and I'm on the phone and I look down and there's this big eastern garter snake at my feet. After a quick Google, I found out they can't hurt you, but I still didn't like it. I mean, I jumped up in the air. You want to talk about no dignity, okay? I jumped up in the air. I got out of there. Um, it, it scared me. So uh, if you go to India, okay, snakes there are very dangerous. They have a lot more uh, venomous snakes there than we do here in Virginia. So two of the most famous. One is the cobra. Cobra's obvious. The cobra is the Michael Jordan of poisonous snakes, right? Like, it dances, it hisses, it flares its neck out. Everybody knows when they see a cobra, you got to stay away from the cobra. It's, it's the worldwide poster boy for deadly snakes. Then there's the crate. The crate is harder to spot. They blend in with their environment. They come in all sorts of different colors depending on what environment they live in. I saw some pictures of them online. There was like this gray gravel in India and the crate was gray. It looked just like the gravel. You couldn't see the thing. Now crates don't get talked about very much. Maybe this morning's the first time you ever heard of a crate. K-R-A-I-T. Don't have the fame and the prestige of the cobra. But let me tell you this. If a crate bites you, you've got about four to eight hours to get help. And during those four to eight hours, you're going to be paralyzed, your entire body. And if you don't get help, you will remain paralyzed until you die. It's just as dangerous as the cobra. So what's my point? The sin of the rebellious son, the sin of the tax collectors, it's the sin of open treason against God. It's obvious sin. It's not hard to spot. Sexual immorality and greed and lust and stealing, right? Squandering your money on prostitutes. All-star sinners committing all-star sins. This is like the cobra. Can sins like this get you and drag you into an eternity of hell? Absolutely. But still, these sins maybe are a bit easier to avoid. Even unbelievers are raised to avoid sins like these, right? But the sin of the righteous son, the righteous son, it's the sin of the Pharisees. It's the sin of subtle pride, of self-justification. And you can be eaten up with this from the inside, but on the outside, you look good to everybody around you. It's much more dangerous because it's harder to spot. It's like the crate. You might not recognize it, but it'll still kill you. And Jesus wants the audience to see they're all bit by cobras and crates. It's a crowd filled with the sinful and the self-righteous. And the only remedy for either one of them is to repent. To turn away from themselves, to trust in God's plan of salvation. And he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, many of the prodigals are repenting, all of heaven is celebrating, and you guys are stomping around outside the house. So my question for you as we close is, which one are you this morning? Because everybody here is either in a far country, or they're in the house celebrating, or you're outside of the house bitter and angry. If you're in the house celebrating, you're in the kingdom. If you're in a far country, you're dying by the venom of the cobra. You're living in rebellion against God. You need to repent and come home. And if you're outside the house stomping around in bitterness, you're dying by the venom of the crate. You're trying to justify yourself. But what you need is to taste grace and forgiveness. You need to repent and you need to come inside.
We're going to pray here in just a moment. And the band's going to come up and close us out. If you're in a far country, or you're stomping around outside the house, you were drowning in sin, or you're drowning in self-righteousness, what I want to tell you to do this morning is to repent. And if you're going, I don't know how to do that, I, I, I would love to come home. I would love to serve Jesus. Uh, we would love to help you with that. And so if you email us or text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com, we will do that. Also, I'll be out at the Meet the Pastor table right after church this morning, and so you can come talk to me if you have questions. Uh, Pastor Ben or Pastor David, they would love to talk to you as well. This is Pastor Ben. Pastor David, raise your hand. That's Pastor David over here. Talk to any of us. We'd love to talk to you uh, about these things. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repent, to repent. You wouldn't play with a venomous snake this morning, right? If I put a cobra or a crate in your hand, you drop it, and you say, I don't want anything to do with that. It could kill me. Why would we not do the same with our sin of rebellion or our sin of self-righteousness? Don't play with the venom of sin this morning, with the venom of lostness. Repent, find salvation in Christ. Come inside the house. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word this morning. It's such a, a rich story from Jesus. It's, it's the most famous story of the greatest storyteller, and it hits us right in the chest, Lord. And I pray, God, if there are people here who do not know you, they are lost because they're living in open rebellion against you or because inside they are tombs filled with rotting bones, but on the outside they look good. Whatever version or flavor or brand of lostness somebody has this morning, God, I pray they would repent and that they would find in you a father who runs out to the rebels and says, let me put the robe on you and the shoes on your feet and the ring on your hand and kill the fattened calf. And the self-righteous Lord this morning who needs salvation, I pray that they would meet a God who comes out to the older brother and entreats him to come inside. There's invitations, Lord, to both types of sinners this morning. May they come in the house. And for those that are already in the house, longing to celebrate the repentance of every sinner, Lord, don't let our hearts change. Don't let us drift back into our, our rebellion or our self-righteousness. Help us to keep relying on your grace and then rejoicing every time somebody else does. We pray this in Jesus' name.